Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. This podcast explores themes of murder and rape. Listener discretion is advised. Los Angeles police have been searching for a killer who has strangled young women and left their bodies along grassy hillsides. We've had yet another uh, set of remains identified. This is the second one that's taken place in the last several weeks. Talk about a battle of the experts. Some even said that, you know, psychiatry itself was on trial. I said, you can't do it because it's too painful for you. You're a piece of shit, Bjarke. I'm Dr. Michelle Ward, and this is Mind of a Monster, The Hillside Strangler and the Night Stalker. Episode 5, The Satanic Murders. It's March 1979, and Kenneth Bianchi has been in custody for two months following his arrest for the murders of Bellingham friends Karen Mandick and Diane Wilder. During questioning, he claims to have no recollection of the murders, but confesses to suffering amnesia. A series of psychiatrists are brought in to assess him. Under forensic hypnosis, something extraordinary appears to happen. Kenneth Bianchi demonstrates signs of multiple personality disorder. In this archive interview with psychiatrist Dr. John Watkins, we can hear the moment Bianchi first reveals the presence of an alternative personality. Are you the same thing as Ken, or are you different in any way? I'm not him. You're not him. Who are you? Do you have a name? Okay. Do you have a name I can call you by? Stu. Huh? You can call me Stu. I can call you Steve. Okay. Steve, tell me about yourself, Steve. What do you do? I hate him. You what? I hate him. You hate him? You mean Ken? Through Steve, Bianchi proceeds to confess to the Hillside Strangler murders and furnishes investigators with the graphic details of each and every crime. 
including the role his cousin Angelo Bono played. But there's a problem. If found insane, then Bianchi would get to go to a medical facility with a realistic possibility of being released again. Worse, his testimony would be thrown out, and it is the only thing linking Bono to the crimes. And at this stage, the defense has not just one, but two leading experts who believe in Bianchi's multiple personality diagnosis. I turn to forensic psychiatrist Dr. Ariana Nesbitt. I'd love to hear your take on Bianchi's attempt to plead insanity by way of having a split personality. Another reason why this case drew so much attention, um, talk about a battle of the experts. Um, some even said that you know psychiatry itself was on trial because this really it just elucidated all the controversy that you know we had in our field. So Bianchi had a lot of experts believing that he had multiple personality disorder, which is now known as dissociative identity disorder, which is described as a disruption in identity characterized by the presence of two or more distinct personality states. While the defense psychiatrist seemed to be convinced of the authenticity of Steve, investigators like LAPD's Bob Grogan are becoming increasingly frustrated. We had access to all the videos. We went up there, sat and watched them. We thought it was like Walt Disney time. I couldn't believe anybody in their right mind would believe all this bullshit. And I'm going, for Christ's sake, give me a break. We called in Dr. Martin Orm. He was probably one of the best criminal psychologists in the country at the time, University of Pennsylvania. Dr. Orn finds nothing outside the interview room to corroborate Bianchi's multiple personality claims. There is no evidence that Steve has been present through Bianchi's life. Indeed, even his own mother dismisses the diagnosis as nonsense. Dr. Orn decides to test if Bianchi is lying or not, so he plays a trick. He suggests that multiple personalities must have more than one alternative personality to see if Bianchi will take the bait. Lo and behold, when he's next hypnotized, someone else appears. In this audio I'm about to play for you, we can hear Bianchi describing the experience to one of his psychiatrists. They said there's a, I heard there's another, another personality, Billy. What do you know about Billy? Does that mean anything to you at all? Not a thing. Well, it was a real surprise you know, to me. What do you know? What I know is is that um, I was trying to explain. You saw the taste of Dr. Ferristein. I was trying to explain things that happened to me uh, in the stealing, where I had no control, no physical control over things that were happening. And um, that was one of the questions I did not go into: is who stole all the tool equipment right. and telephones and stuff. That was and it was it was mentioned um, to me that there's a good chance that that Billy had something to do with this this stuff. Um, that's basically all I know. I was, you know, I was really surprised. Okay, I'll tell you. I'm still trying to survive, Steve. Yeah, well, you see, that's what I got when I asked, you know, you under hypnosis using finger signals for yes and no, was there any, were there any others? I got a no. Somebody lied to me. Steve. Well, I don't know. I'm not trying to uh, lay blame. 
To Dr. Orne, the emergence of Billy is the smoking gun, proof that Bianchi has been faking it, as forensic psychiatrist Dr. Ariana Nesbitt explains. Dr. Martin Orne was able to determine that he was really faking this the whole time. It came out over the course of uh, the investigation that Bianchi had a lot of exposure to the idea of multiple personality disorder, right? He had been exposed to uh, Sybil and Three Faces of Eve. He had psychology textbooks that undoubtedly described this disorder in great detail. So he put on a very good act. He had read what he should be looking like. He read, you know, all the criteria that he's supposed to have to get this disorder. So um, he was a very well-educated malingerer, which are sometimes the hardest ones to disprove. He came in and destroyed Kenny Bianchi in a day and made the rest of the psychiatrists look like a bunch of fools. And away we went. When Martin Orm got through, we said, bang, here we go. With the insanity plea now dead in the water, investigators put pressure on Bianchi for details. I made a point of leaning on him when we were interviewing him in Bellingham, Washington. I said, because I want to lean on that son of a bitch about Cepeda and Johnson. Because, see, that's something that, if you kill two little girls like that, and then you torture them for three days, and then you engage in multiple sex acts with them in three days, that's, I don't care how tough a guy you are, that's gotta have an emotional impact on you as a human being. And I leaned on him big time on that, and he crushed and crumbled like an old cookie. Well, I can't talk about that, it's so painful. I says, you can't talk about so fucking painful. What about her and the family? It's not painful. You know, you can't do it because it's too painful for you. You're a piece of shit, Bianchi. You just touched on something that I think is incredibly important. You're one of the few people who had deep private conversations with Bianchi. And it sounds to me like somehow he had a level of remorse about the young girls. Is that what you felt from this monster? Did he actually have a human moment where he recognized the gravity of what he did and maybe perhaps felt some empathy? Bullshit, no way. Nothing to do with remorse. It's embarrassment. Nothing to do with remorse. He has no remorse over that. If he did have remorse, he wouldn't have went up and killed those two girls in goddamn Bellingham. He has no remorse. This is, I'm embarrassed to be confronted with this because after all, I am a man. He's, you know, that's what got him and I knew that would get him. I knew who he was. I did a big background on this idiot. You know, I went back to Rochester and spoke to him. I even spoke to one of the nuns in his uh, parochial classes. So I had a pretty good idea who I was dealing with. True to character, Bianchi makes another play for lenience, this time by offering to testify against his own cousin, Angelo Bono. Angelo had decided that it was best that no evidence be left behind. So every piece of jewelry and clothing and everything that the girls possessed, from pocketbooks to shoes to clothes, everything was packaged in bags and put in uh, Angelo's garbage dumpster. What physical proof might there be that would tie Angelo to any of this. 
Okay, there might be fingerprints, fingerprints at various points in the house, fingerprints in two cars that Angelo uh, has had, one belonging to a customer he was working on, the other one belonging to himself, which was a white Mustang. As far as physical evidence, Angelo may have kept some jewelry. It's not certain. Uh, the jewelry that he may have kept may be gone by now. But he may have kept some jewelry because Angelo went through uh, a couple of the girls' purses. Richard Ramirez, who has now been living in Los Angeles for seven years, had to have been aware of the Hillside Strangler investigation. What had been a big story during the attacks and murders became huge with the news surrounding Bianchi's psychological state. It's May 14, 1985, and Ramirez is already on track to outdo Bianchi and Bono with his brutality. By now, cops have visited the sites of five murders and one attempted murder. But links are still not being made, and tonight, he is coasting with his engine and lights off down a quiet street in Monterey Park, Los Angeles. Just two months earlier, he'd brutally murdered Veronica Yu in this very neighborhood. This evening, he's spotted by a young woman who would later describe him as having quote-unquote scary eyes. He enters the home of Bill and Lillian Doy, carrying a new silver-plated 22 automatic. What happens next is nothing short of carnage. He shoots and beats Bill, beats and sexually assaults Lillian, ransacks the house and steals two bags of valuables. Bill holds on to life long enough to call the police, but dies soon after. Lillian survives and provides a description of the killer, tall, wearing black, with bad teeth. There's more. The killer has left something behind a shoe print. Coming up, we follow as the Night Stalker continues his reign of terror in L.A. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive in June. Olive in June gives you Everything that you need for a salon quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which 
is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Hey, it's Janice from Warner Brothers Discovery. If you're looking for a little extra peace of mind, you might want to check out Simply Safe. Simply Safe was kind enough to send me a home protection system to try out, and I couldn't believe how easy it was to set up. Not only that, I'm kind of a gear nerd, and I was really impressed by how clear the camera was. I also love the smart lock keyless entry because there are a lot of things to remember each day, and my keys aren't always on that list, okay? Not only that, Simply Safe offers a 60-day money-back guarantee, and U.S. News & World Report awarded them the best home security systems of 2024. Simply Safe has given me and many of our listeners real peace of mind, and I want you to have that too. Right now, get 20% off any new Simply Safe system with fast protect monitoring at simplysafe.com/mindofamonster. There's no safe like Simply Safe. It's early summer 1985, and L.A. is in the middle of a heat wave. Those paying attention might have noticed a couple of stories about domestic murders in March, but there's nothing to make people worry in the same way they had during the Hillside Strangler. Nothing yet, at least. But Richard Ramirez is only just getting started. Ken Davis was a reporter for NBC News at the time of the Night Stalker attacks, living with his young family in L.A. Los Angeles is big. So big that you could fit Boston, San Francisco, Pittsburgh, St. Louis, Minneapolis, Cleveland, Milwaukee, and the entire island of Manhattan within its borders. But when the Night Stalker was on the loose, L.A. felt like a small town in Nebraska. It seemed we were all united in fear. Can you talk me through the sequence of events? On June 1st, 1985, Mabel Bell and her sister, two women in their 80s, were bludgeoned to death and satanic symbols were scrawled in various places. Then there were two murders relatively close to where I lived. So it was solid panic, both amongst the public when I'm at work and when I'm home for my family. I was extremely scared, especially when the murders got too close for comfort. On July 2nd, 1985, Mary Louise Cannon, 75 of Arcadia, was beaten and her throat slashed. And then just three days later, Young woman Whitney Bennett, 16 years old, was attacked in Sierra Madre. Fortunately, she survived. On July 7, 1985, Joyce Lucille Nelson, 61, was beaten to death in Monterey Park. The same day, Sophie Dickman of Monterey Park was raped and sodomized. The stream of brutal crimes and horrifying details of gouged eyes, pentagrams, and rape strike fear in terrified locals whose worst nightmares have been realized. Just seven years after the Hillside Strangler, there is another serial killer in town. And there is no telling where or who would be next. At this point, it's the hottest summer in perhaps a century in Southern California. It was hitting 100, 105 degrees. People wanted to leave their windows open, but they couldn't because they believed a satanic, deranged killer was on the loose. 
There's an awful lot to unpack here, and I want to dive deeper into the psyche of the specific type of killer. I speak with forensic psychiatrist Dr. Ariana Nesbitt. What can we say on the way Ramirez dehumanizes his victims? People may be serial killers and may be committing these sorts of offenses for different reasons. So some of the reason why a serial killer may dehumanize their victim is simply because, you know, first of all, well, if they're a psychopath, they just don't have empathy for them. They probably don't recognize them as human beings with emotions and a need for dignity the way that most of us would. Um, and some of it also in that vein might just be for the power and the control and to say, here, look what I can do to you. But for some of these guys um, who have diagnoses of sexual sadism, if you think that they're getting pleasure out of inflicting pain and suffering and humiliation on them, well, it makes sense why they might be doing this. And, you know, Richard Ramirez uh, dehumanizes victims in a number of ways, right? So he tore out some of their eyeballs, but also another way that he dehumanized them was by humiliating them. So, you know, we know in some of his sexual assaults, he made them hail Satan. And this might be arousing to him because it makes him feel like he's in control. Like, look, I can make you do anything. Your life is in my hands, and that can be extremely arousing for someone who is a sexual sadist. Detective Frank Salerno, who headed the Hillside Strangler Task Force, is put on the Night Stalker case with Detective Gil Carrillo. With media interest escalating, pressure is on law enforcement to apprehend the killer. But what do they have to go on? A lot of evidence was coming out. At this point, his shoe prints, his fingerprints, they knew which bullets he was using. They were piling up evidence, but not sharing it with the public. There is one piece of evidence that is particularly important. Investigators match the footprints found at several crime scenes to an Avia aerobic shoe. This is important because only 1,354 pairs of this particular shoe have been made. Of those, only six were sold in California. And of that six, there is only one pair of 11 and a halfs. If they find the shoe, they would find the man. Pictures of the shoe are sent confidentially to police departments across LA. All the while, Ramirez is plotting and planning. In an exclusive interview with author Philip Carlo for his book, The Night Stalker, Ramirez demonstrates a chilling understanding of how serial killer investigations work. The words you are about to hear are authentic and voiced by an actor. To apprehend a serial killer, you need to get inside the mind of the serial killer. Normal, ordinary people do not think like a serial killer. They have no conception of what is going on in a killer's mind, how he operates. Certainly serial killers and killers have the advantage in that they use the element of surprise, darkness. It is difficult for police. They are at a disadvantage because these are stranger to stranger crimes. And it will always be so. I don't think that can change. On July 20th, Ramirez purchases an industrial machete. He steals a Toyota and enters the freeway system, heading for Glendale, once the stomping grounds of Kenneth Bianchi and Angelo Bono. He finds the home of Max Kniding and his wife, Layla. The house is locked, but he breaks in and makes his way to the bedroom, where he proceeds to stab and shoot the pair to death. Receiving reports of gunshots, police are on the scene within minutes, but they're too late. The couple is dead, and Ramirez is back on the freeway. 
Glenn Martin is a police officer with LAPD at the time. He's followed his namesake father into law enforcement. He speaks to me about how his father, as head of the investigation bureau at Glendale PD, was on the scene. They ran a picture of my father in the LA Times after the conniting murder. He oversaw the investigation, um, living out in Walnut. And phone rang and my mother was, was absolutely beside herself that my dad had a gun in the house because he never kept a gun in the house when we were growing up. And somehow she'd missed the photo of the LA Times. What it said to me was, you know, dad had seen something at that crime scene or learned something that alarmed him. So it was an interesting time because my mom was absolutely alarmed that 27 years into his police career, he finally brings a gun home. She had no idea what was going on. I said, hey, Mom, you need to pick up the L.A. Times. As, you know, it's obvious that he saw something that caused him to, uh, to bring his gun home. And as we found out later, it was a, a horrific crime scene because he still doesn't talk about it. I tried to interview him for my book. He didn't want anything to do with it. Glenn Martin of Glendale PD wasn't the only one gripped with fear. Everyone in L.A. seemed to be on tenterhooks. I remember it well. Nothing terrorized Los Angeles like the Night Stalker. Absolutely nothing before that, absolutely nothing since then. People need to understand how horribly upended 10 million people were when this was going on. My dog was always an outside dog, and so now he's sleeping on the bed with me, and people that never allowed guns in the house were out buying guns. I remember that the lumber yard pushing gravel. You know, you need to put this around the perimeter of your house so you can hear somebody if they're walking up to your windows. Yeah, there was some opportunism to it. First, you need to lock everything down. Then you need to light the place, you know, and taking up arms in defense of yourself typically doesn't work out well, but that certainly was part of the program. It was, it was just a fascinating time in the, in the fact that folks were so much, uh, so wrapped up in, um, in, in, and they should have been. These were the, it's a serial killer. There were horrific murders. Everybody was looking over their shoulder. Nobody was sleeping well. Everybody was taking some kind of extraordinary measure that was out of their character to try and take care of themselves and their loved ones. For my own part, I vividly remember the fear at home. The Night Stalker, because that's what we knew him as at the time, brutally attacked my sister's friend. The impact was huge. We bought a German Shepherd, we locked the windows at night even though it was so hot, and at one point we even left Los Angeles for a while to get away from it all. I want to understand what was going through Ramirez's mind at the time, knowing that there was so much mass hysteria and such a huge task force hunting him down. I speak again with forensic psychiatrist, Dr. Ariana Nesbitt. Could you outline Ramirez's psychological history along with his head injuries? You know, there seems to be a lot going on and starting at a young age, um, so he suffered a number of head injuries as a child and also as a child uh, developed seizures. Now, some said that these were temporal lobe seizures. So these are seizures that begin in the part of the brain where emotions are processed, the area of the brain that also deals with some very basic drives, including sexual arousal. So this type of seizure and brain injuries in this region in general have long been the focus of a lot of study. And some have looked at how individuals with seizures in this region can lead to abnormalities that could be potentially contributory. So maybe aggression, maybe some unusual sexual responses. That being said, I 
think it's hard to know if this really did play a role at all. A lot of the syndromes that have historically been described as being associated with temporal lobe epilepsy are pretty controversial. It's really hard to know whether his head injuries and seizures had anything to do with his aberrant sexual behavior as well as his serial killing. Temporal lobe seizures and, and brain injuries are very common, so um, to say that something that's common causes something rare, it, I, I mean, the association is just really fuzzy. What happens to a killer of Richard Ramirez's mold when they successfully and repeatedly get away with killings? Do they feel emboldened? Yeah, and I think we see this a lot. The stereotypical idea is that we have a serial killer who's got this specific ritual, this specific MO that doesn't change, and you can detect them because they do the same thing every time, and that just isn't what the data shows. And in fact, what we see is usually a progression over time as they get comfortable with simpler offenses, they learn how to get away with it, and they feel emboldened, and they also are kind of chasing that high. And one thing that I think we don't hear quite as much about Richard Ramirez I think is really interesting that really speaks to this progression is that he would go on these voyeuristic walks and around the same time got very much into burglarizing. He was known as kind of Sticky Fingers. That was one of his nicknames. So these two things together were probably the beginnings of his later offenses where he would burglarize houses. He would get a voyeuristic thrill out of seeing the women sleeping in bed, but probably not touch them. And then after a while, that didn't do it for him, right? That wasn't enough of a sexual thrill. So he turned towards a much more violent means of actually raping them, assaulting them, and of course, eventually killing them. So you can really see that pretty dramatic progression, which is terrifying. In July 1985, the Night Stalker shows no sign of stopping. Ken Davis. Then on July 20th, Shaveron Covenant of Sun Valley was shot to death. On August 8th, Elias Abawath of Diamond Park was shot while sleeping. By now, the heat is really on to catch the killer, so Ramirez packs up and makes his way to another city. Then two weeks later, the murders moved north up to San Francisco when Peter and Barbara Pan were attacked. Sadly, Peter died, Barbara Pan survived, It was able to give good information to police. After the Night Stalker attacked the Pan couple, San Francisco Mayor Diane Feinstein held a news conference in which she offered a reward for information leading to the killer's arrest. But she also gave up all the clues the police had been working so painstakingly to gather and wanted to keep away from the media including the shoes, ballistics, and information about the car Ramirez was believed to be driving. Detectives were outraged. They needed to start all over. And Ramirez was obviously listening because he did ditch his shoes over the Golden Gate Bridge. A few weeks after the news conference, Ramirez stalks Orange County in a stolen Toyota. He's looking for his next victim. That night, he arrived at the home of James Romero Jr., who had just returned from a family vacation to Rosarito Beach in Mexico. Romero's son, 13-year-old James Romero III, happened to be awake and heard footsteps outside the house. Thinking there was a prowler, James went to wake his parents, and Ramirez fled the scene. James raced outside and noted the color, make, and style of the car, as well as a partial license plate, 482T. Romero contacted the police with this information, thinking his son had chased away a thief. 
But later that night, Ramirez attacked another couple in Orange County. The stolen car was later found abandoned on August 28th in the Koreatown section of Los Angeles, and police obtained a single fingerprint from the rearview mirror. The print was positively identified as belonging to Ramirez, who was described as a 25-year-old drifter from Texas with a long rap sheet that included many arrests for traffic and illegal drug violations. Soon, they matched it to an old booking photo of Ramirez. We now had a face of the killer. After some disagreements, since detectives didn't want Ramirez to see his face on TV and flee, law enforcement officials decided to release that mugshot of Ramirez. And now the Night Stalker finally had a face. My source inside the LAPD told me about this photo. At the police press conference, it was announced, we now know who you are, and soon everyone else will. There is no place for you to hide, and we immediately put this on the 10 p.m. news, as did every other broadcast in town. They now have Richard Ramirez's name, face, prints, and even his vehicle. Once they have a suspect, there is a good chance they'll catch the serial killer because we all leave particles of ourselves wherever we are. But not even he could have predicted how it would happen. In the next episode, the Hillside Stranglers go to trial and the Night Stalker is finally captured. Mind of a Monster, The Hillside Strangler and the Night Stalker is produced by Arrow Media for ID. I'm your host, Dr. Michelle Ward. You can follow our show wherever you get your podcasts. And we'd love it if you could take a second to leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. This is the story of The One. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. 
With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.